Hello and welcome to Meet the Music. I am your host, Thomas Corley. Thank you for listening and joining our musical journey. In our previous seasons, we explored a number of music genres that were heavily influenced by Black musicians, like the blues, jazz, and R&B. This episode, we are going to introduce something that is not commonly known by music listeners. This episode will feature a conversation slash education on the Black music influences in the rock and roll music genre. Joining me for insight is Denise Sullivan. Ms. Sullivan is an American music journalist, historian, and author. She is a contributor and writer for San Francisco Examiner, San Francisco Chronicle, Downbeat, Tourworthy, and Current San Francisco. She has contributed to many books, magazines, and web sources. From the San Francisco Chronicle and all the music guide to the Rolling Stone, her books include The White Stripes, a local band from Detroit, Sweethearts of the Blues, R.E.M., Talk About the Passion, Rip It Up, Rock and Roll, Rule Breakers, Shamans, Blues, The Art Influences Behind Jim Morrison and The Doors, and Keeping On Pushing, Black Power Music from the Blues to Hip Hop, all of which may possibly be reference points in our conversation. Here's a quote from Pop Matters. Denise Sullivan represents the insider intellectual stamina of rock and roll journalism without the pomp and pretense. She is, a pa- she is the past infusion of the form rolled into one uncanny style. Denise Sullivan, welcome to Meet the Music. Thank you, Thomas. I'm really honored and glad to be here with you today. Uh, thank you for your time. So let's just start from the beginning. What was your soundtrack in your youth and kind of what your soundtrack was in your college days? Wow. Well, you know, from from as early as I can remember, music was part of my household. Not that my parents played uh, particularly, but they were real enthusiasts, you know, with the uh, stereo and records. And um, I think pertinent to your broadcast, all types of music were represented in the household. My dad was a super jazz fan and had gone to see live jazz in San Francisco kind of in its its heyday in, in the 50s and, and 60s. And uh, my mom liked anything that was popular on the radio, uh, show tunes and vocals and opera. And so all of this was kind of swirling around. And of course, this was a time when radio was still a very powerful force in the culture. <laughs> in fact, I would say radio and television were the dominant media at the time. And it was always on. So as a child of, of that time, you know, we, we would joke that the television was the babysitter or the radio and the record player became kind of uh, my pastime, uh, really. So uh, when I say all types of music, I, I really do mean all types of music. But that said, you know, we we all love the music of our time. So um, in the late 60s, early 70s, you know, this this kind of music with a message really caught my ear because that was what was happening at the time. And a lot of um, groups, whether they were rock or soul or um, folk, right? They were dealing in the topical subject matter of the time. So you asked me, <laughs> I've already taken a few, uh, you know, off side roads here, but you asked me what was my kind of music? Well, you know, of course, um, I loved what was on the radio. 
and what was on TV. And at that time, it was um, groups like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. And um, it was also um, these variety shows, you know, like, I, I don't know if you would remember, but um, certainly anyone who grew up in my time would remember this this um, tradition of like the Ed Sullivan show, or right. the Smothers Brothers comedy art, Flip Wilson. Yeah. Everybody had crazy musical guests. So you could see The Doors, for example. You could see, you know, the Isley Brothers. You could see, I mean, it was just crazy. We were bombarded with great music all the time. So that was formative for me. And I, I can safely say that I carried that forward with me. And then, of course, I would go backward in time. By the time I got to college and it was kind of hip hop and punk rock and, you know, all that was kind of in the mix, we were starting to reach back in time because some of our favorite groups, whether, you know, it was um, Grandmaster Flash or The Clash, who, by the way, worked together. And that is a, that's a very formative experience for me when I saw Grandmaster Flash and The Clash together sharing the stage. Um, but, but they would tell us, hey, look, you have to go back and listen to X, Y, and Z. And The Clash would say, bring Bo Diddley on tour with them or Lee Dorsey. So suddenly I'm introduced into a world of music that predates my existence but I'm very, very interested in it. So that's how it works for me, a kind of timeline, backward, forward, forward, back. And, um, and I don't discriminate uh, along lines of you know, musical categories uh, at all because it just comes very naturally to me. The, the charts uh, and television itself was you know, um, integrated for lack of a better word. In fact, rock and roll was a, a response, uh, a rejection of segregation. So um, that takes us right, you know, back to the birth of rock and roll, which we, we may or may not talk about. But, but I think that I always took that for granted. Now, decades have passed, and that history has kind of fallen away. There's so many more artists out there in the world that we all have to catch up on and keep up on. So how could we possibly know this deep history of rock and roll, which right. of course predates right. rock and roll, goes back to the blues and gospel and, you know, the, the, the tribal drumming of indigenous America uh, also takes in Cuba and, you know, the, um, uh, the coast of Africa. So you see, it's all a hybrid thing. And um, it's not as simple as uh, the blues had a baby and named it rock and roll, like Muddy Waters <laughs> said. Right. Um, or it's not just blues and country and gospel. It's all that other stuff. And to me, you could probably tell the way I'm rushing through this. It, it's very exciting. I'm passionate about it. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. But I want to roll back for a second. So in your youth, um, were you unique in your listening happiness among your friends? That's funny. You should ask. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I guess I was. And um, I don't I think about that much. And um, it was interesting. The, the person that would try to get other people excited 
about uh, a certain music, right? Uh, I, I was the one who had the budget to go out and buy a single. In fact, I have friends that I've had my whole life and they remember um, me making us ride the bikes to the five and dime so I could buy a 45 of something that was on the radio and then come back home and play it over and over and over and over again until, you know, everyone was about to go crazy. That was, yeah, that was who I was. It was part of my identity. And, you know, it's funny for those of us who love and, and, um, collect records and become kind of, um, you know, gather this intimate knowledge about the music some would say it's a substitute for not having an art or musical ability ourselves. And that may well be true, but, um, music, just the sound of music just brought me a kind of joy that was indescribable. So it was my, my area, my, my place to go, you know, my so-called safe place, an area of comfort and great joy for me. And so whether I was an outsider among my friends, which I kind of was in that regard, I, I had that place to go and, and, and the music always supported me. Yeah. My listeners have heard me say this before. Um, I, you know, growing up in Detroit, uh, we were fortunate enough to have, you know, four of the major sport teams here. Um, and so on Monday, you know, after a weekend of sports, you know, everybody would have these conversations about, you know, what player did what during the course of the game. I was the guy who could tell you the, the popular DJs, what their <laughs> set was, <laughs> And, and, you know, what uh, new song came out, you know, the night before or something like that. So, so yeah, I, I'm unique like that also. Well, I was just saying, you know, it is kind of like, like sports fans, it is kind of about collecting stats, right? Right. The names and the dates and the places and, and um, yeah, even right down to the catalog numbers on, on the records and absurd things like that. You know, I, I feel like, it was a replacement of sorts um, for for my ability to have emotions in real time, but in a way that kind of saved me, um, you know, from from the difficulties of growing up. Right, right. So yeah. it sounds to me like uh, you probably a little bit more—not a little bit more—you probably a lot more into liner notes than I was. Oh my gosh, you know, I, I I can feel it, you know, just thinking about it. It's really sweet to go back and and explore these memories because it's not something that I think about that much these days, but but it's so fresh in my mind that feeling of getting a new record mm-hmm. and opening it up and putting it on and then sitting with right. the album yeah. and reading every word. <laughs> right. Um, and and just living with it. You know, there were no other distractions in the room with you except the the album itself. So, yeah, I would read the liner notes over and over. And and I think now I, I can't say this for sure, but I do think that it probably put the idea in my head that I would see, say, like on on some of my parents records, you know, on the jazz records uh, and on on the Columbia records that we're putting out, like the folk music and the, and the kind of records by um, um, artists who now, you know, are, are kind of heritage artists 
but at the time they were new and fresh, whatever it was, you know, uh, Olatunji uh, or um, uh, Nina Simone, Odetta, mm-hmm. these kinds of things. I would look and I would see, oh, well, somebody wrote about this in, in the New York Times or, you know, these names like, Nat Hentoff or Ralph Gleason, and they're yes, saying yes, these yes, things yes. about these artists. Would be like, huh? Well, maybe there's room for me in in that world to write on the backs of albums. Uh-huh. I didn't know how you would do that, but it just seemed like a place where I could fit. You know, yeah. uh, I think it planted a seed anyway. Yeah. Well, in your bio, in many places I looked, you know, whether it be Amazon or wikipedia or or your website it mentioned that you were a dj at what stage in your life did you do a gig as a dj well um i you know college radio okay uh, yeah that's where everybody starts yeah 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 college radio was a great opportunity and then um I was really interested, you know, I feel foolish talking about this because um, I don't know why I feel foolish, but but I do, I guess, because I'm kind of a shy person and um, I don't like to say I did this. It almost seems unbelievable. It kind of seems unbelievable to me, but I will just tell you that. um, (laughs) (laughs) Don't hold back. I, I really loved hip hop, you know, at, 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 at the birth of hip hop, the golden age of hip hop as it's, as it's known. And, um, so I started to, um, uh, acquire, um, a lot of Sugar Hill records, 12 inch, uh, records, um, because my friends were playing them and some of them were DJs and some of them, uh, knew how to, uh, beat mix because they had worked in discos and I was, you know, younger and just coming up and I, and I was curious. And so I asked a couple friends to, to teach me how to spin records for the club, which is different than spinning records on the air for a college radio station. And I was lucky enough to have a couple people um, show me how to do it. So, you know, I did learn how to beat mix as a young woman, and I did play records in dance clubs at a time when, you know, that was kind of um, unusual for a young woman um, to be doing, uh, a young white woman, actually, um, you know, to be doing. Um, I, I didn't excel at it. I was okay at it. <laughs> but the point is, is that I tried it because I was such a fan, you know. Um, I, I just love the music. And once again, we're going back to that that idea that, you know, it brought me so much joy. And the thing about beat mixing and DJing in general, as you know, is that you have to be in the moment. You cannot you cannot let your mind wander for a second. So if you're trying to match that beat, I mean, you are completely in full concentration mode before you let that record slip. So I think I loved the intensity of the meditation, you know, the Zen of, um, mixing. Oh, wow. Uh, 
Yeah, I wished today. Now, if if I had it to do over again, I would have pursued the technical side and the production side um, further than I did uh, after college. I basically got through college um, and avoided a lot of the hands-on stuff. I just did the bare minimum. I wish I had paid more attention because, of course, the technological revolution was coming, and I. I might have been better prepared, right. but <laughs> so what, that was where, then. What was your? Where did you grow up in your youth? What city did you? In the in the San Francisco Bay, oh, Bay area. area. Okay, in the Bay Area. Okay, yeah. all yeah. right. So you are not. Um, you know who Sly Stone is, then? Of course. <laughs> okay. You know, I mean, as a child, you know, it was like. Uh, this idea that, you know, you, I, I mean, you know, a lot of my memories, they get, well, you know, the, the sands of time, you know, they, they tumble these things around and, and some of it gets washed away and some of it, you know, is crystal clear. But um, the point is, I think as a kid, I, I, I probably thought that the family stone was actually a family. Um, and in, you know, in some regard, they were, of course they were. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but but really, it was like this this fantasy of mine was that a band and a family. I mean, that's that's like a dream come true. Okay, like uh, I used to watch the Partridge Family. Same here. Um, I used to <laughs> used to, and I oh my gosh, this um, I'm, I don't know if you've seen the uh, Summer of Soul, right? Yeah, I did catch uh, that. The film, yes. right? So. Yeah. I did not expect you all these great artists of all time. I did not expect when the portion came on the fifth dimension that this is what would bring me to tears when I had a recollection of how much I loved the fifth dimension mm. that I would I would act out the songs much like they did with those stage moves, right? <laughs> the, right, right. The interpretive dance. Yeah, I mean this idea that a band was together, you know, partners and love and family, this was, this was just something that I couldn't imagine. So to get back to Sly, well, this was a dream come true. Black, white, men, women, and the music is undeniable. And the message is all about love. Right. So... What could be better? Right. I, I just, you know, oh, oh, I, this is this is just something. The story of Sly Stone will probably haunt all of us till the end of time, because a, a massive talent, you know, um, that walked among us, that that brought uh, innovation to the studio and to the stage. And this music that is everlasting, you know, if, if I wanted to get across anything at all in this conversation, um, whether we're calling it rock and roll or um, rock and soul, which I, I, is a term that I love, um, uh, which I picked up from um, the great uh, singer Solomon Burke, um, who used it pretty persistently and consistently, um, whether we're talk whatever kind of music we're talking about, great music transcends time and space and categorization, right? Yes, yes. That yes. is why Sly 
you know, you, you put that on for anybody and they're not going to be able to deny it. It's genius. The college days, I mean, were you DJing? Were you able to um, have um, a, a free format or were you guys restricted to play something uh, different, I mean, genre-wise? Oh, no, definitely free format. So, you know, what would be, what would be great is that, um, as I said before, you know, that, that contemporary groups would lead us back to the music of the 50s. And um, I would like to say earlier, but, you know, um, we weren't really, um, I, I would say that I didn't know too many of my contemporaries who were into like early, um, early recorded American music. And when I speak of that, I really mean blues and um, gospel in particular. But um, so we would play the music of the 50s and then the music of the 60s and 70s along with the music of the 80s. And it, it, it didn't seem unusual or strange. Some of us had grown up in that 70s era of FM underground radio where free format was kind of the thing and we wanted to emulate that and san francisco certainly has a legacy of freeform radio uh, and we were trying to uphold that so i could i could throw in um something like um sly next to um whatever you know I, I, right. we played a lot of motown we played a lot of ska because and we played a lot of reggae that went hand in hand with um the modern rock i mean it was just danceable really oh okay that, that was part of it and it often had uh, a message uh, about unity uh freedom um, whatever uh, was happening, you know, I, I, I would say, you know, we were in the um, the anti-apartheid uh, kind of the that movement was really culminating, mm -hmm. you know, at that time. And so you had a lot of um, young rock bands kind of working for the anti-apartheid cause. And this could bring you back to. Um, the the political music of the 60s and 70s with ease and grace you could move in and out of those kinds of uh, sounds and not even really this is kind of the interesting part and not really even let the listener know that you were trying to send a message because they were just nodding and dancing along right 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 so you you mentioned um somewhat of an inspiration for you um, the New York Times writers and their pieces that they did. What was the spark for you? Well, well let me let me ask this question. Well, before you wrote your books, what, did you write papers or um, for? Uh, mm. I mean, what did you write? I guess what did you write first that you remember that was well, passionate yeah. for I, you? What I remember first doing was um, compiling. Um, a uh, music uh, chart, a playlist for like a grade school um, newsletter. I, I don't remember a thing that was on it, but I do remember that somewhere around high school, I noticed that my high school paper had a music 
um, critic or columnist. And mm-hmm. again, I, I made that leap. Oh, that's something that I could do. Um, and so I started working for the high school paper and I kind of quickly worked my way into that, that, um, music columnist job, which, um, and I had a lot of encouragement from my, uh, high school journalism teacher. And so again, like the records, the journalism room kind of became my hangout and I picked up a lot of skills and knowledge about how to make a newspaper, um, and became an editor of the school paper and, and pursued that in college. So it was all about media and production, broadcasting and um, writing for me. So I continued to work on um, the college paper. And then I got a gig for a local music publication um, covering local music news. And it was, you know, pretty typical entry level stuff. I did not um I did not get to pursue journal um you know newspaper journalism until um later in life I I went and worked other kinds of jobs but I was in and around the music business so in a way I was picking up valuable insider information about the music business which I could write a whole other book on and we could have a whole other discussion on but it's pertinent to my um, my coverage today of what I think are underreported stories, the ways in which artists, um, songwriters, and often women and people of color have been historically uh, mistreated by the music industry itself. Um, this is what I learned from working inside music, and this is what I bring to my reporting today. So, you know, all was not lost. Um, all the experience was good and valuable. And, and, um, and again, I'm just as passionate about pursuing, uh, artistic, racial, creative, um, economic justice for folks as I am about, um, you know, listening, (laughs) listening to music of the ages. Yeah. So can you go ahead and touch on the historical, birth of rock and roll? Sure. I mean, you know, it's funny, depending on who you talk to, you know, um, rock and roll had a lot of uh, different births, right? And we talked about the the hybrid um, uh, element of it's not just a new thing, it's many different things put together. But um, somewhere in, you know, the late forties, it's, it's generally agreed there. It could be earlier, it could be later, but by the late forties, early fifties, this sound was kind of developing. And, um, I thought, wouldn't it be neat if we started before 1950 and 1949 with John Lee Hooker, who, um, as you know, has a connection to Detroit and also has a connection to the Bay area and I really believe, um, just because I happened to hear it a couple weeks ago on the radio, the, the 1949 recording of Boogie Children, that wow. um, I was like, this is rock and roll, you know? 
this is rock and roll. Now, a lot of people would say, okay, well, then 1951, we have Ike Turner and, you know, Rocket 88, and it has, you know, that feel. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I would like to start with John Lee Hooker, and I would like to continue the thread because we know that as time went on, he was beloved by the so-called, you know, mainstream uh, rock and rollers, the classic rock people, right? And right. he was uh, extremely influential. My point is that I don't think that he gets his due uh, as as an original. Now, fast forward a little bit to 1955 when when um, Chuck Berry comes out with Maybelline and Bo Diddley comes out with um, Bo Diddley and, um, you know, you, you say, well, okay, that's where rock and roll is born. Okay, fine. Fair enough. You know, uh, Chuck Berry gets his nickname, the father of rock and roll. Bo Diddley's the originator. They can battle it out. Um, you know, I I don't care because, uh, they're both great as is little Richard, as is Fats Domino. Um, you know, who are, how are we going to, you know, Fats Domino was in way early with yes. the fat man. So how can we really say when and where and how? That's why I just say, let's just go with John Lee Hooker. It's 1949. And then, then the 50s come on. And, and I think it's like, I love John Lee because um, he has a Bay Area connection. And I got to see him, one of the living bluesmen that I got to see on a frequent basis. Um, and that we know that, uh, some of our other local folks, Carlos Santana, for example, loved John Lee. Um, he also, um, liked Miles Davis and I would be really remiss if I didn't say that jazz had a huge impact on rock and roll. I mean, um, Chuck Berry loved Charlie Christian and, um, we know we know this to be true that rock and roll would not exist without jazz either. So it's just you know I am by no means a an expert on rock and roll. I do though like to go into these hidden corners and try to pull the threads together, and and open the doors for other people to go through for further exploration. So I can tell you all this kind of surface knowledge, but I can't tell you the actual date, time, and place of the recording. I right. mean, I can in my writing when I'm doing the research, Search, but my brain, yeah. yeah, my brain doesn't fire that way. But what I can tell you is that I know that there are too many unheralded uh, heroes and sheroes of rock and roll. Please, let's not get going on, you know. Uh, Sister Rosetta Tharp and right. and the Blues Women, Memphis Minnie, Ma Rainey, uh, Bessie Smith. I mean, right. these women informed the rock and roll writing style, the delivery, the content of the songs. So you know, we must never speak these other names without mentioning them. And then, as time goes on, I mean, I I could just go on, Thomas. It's crazy, you know, the Isley Brothers. Um, you know, the parliaments, I mean, what the heck, Just, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, one does not exist without the other, Correct. you know, uh, yeah. we're all in this stew. And that, that is one of the great things, you know, 
that um, the tale of rock and roll has been told and told and told from all these different angles. And I think it's incumbent on the newer historians, the people coming up, to take a look again at these um, these often un- undercovered and underreported angles. You know, we know the business was crooked, okay? Yes. We, we have heard of the scandals. We have heard of the ripoffs. But have we really investigated the lives of, say, the songwriters without whom the music would not have been made? You know, the, the Otis Blackwells of the world, you know, who who wrote the, the songs mostly that Elvis Presley sang. What about Arthur Alexander? These names don't exactly roll off the the tongues of young rock and roll fans. My argument is they should know these names because this is what the birth and rock of rock and roll was about. These people who were toiling with a pen and paper to write songs that again transcend time and category. You look at the list of some of these songs that that people wrote, you know, whatever it was, Fever, you know, the Otis Blackwell song, Fever, recorded by Little Willie John and Peggy Lee, most famously, right? Mm, but right. what do you know about Otis Blackwell? Um, that's just one example, right? This is why I, I'm not this telling is, This is why I have this podcast. It's a passion project for me. And what it does, what I hope it does, is introduce people to this whole idea of, you know, dig, digging deeper into into music and not be a mono musical, but in, embrace all the music that's out there, you know, whether it be categorized or just, you know, no label on it at all. But this is I appreciate you going through this and uh, sharing that because it's very key to the podcast to be able to say, okay, these are um, individuals that you might want to research and go back and find out a little bit more about them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Detroit is such an important part on the map of American music, right? I mean, we know that. Um, And, you know, you have some, some great examples of black innovation and uh, business success. I, I don't have to, you know, state the obvious, probably Motown. Right. But how many other things were happening in Detroit? You could probably name a bunch. I could name a bunch. And interestingly, they're all kind of like far out, kind of like really edgy things, whether we're talking about rock and roll or uh, kind of uh, just a, a progressive thought and then just dance music and good time stuff that was happening on Hastings Street, the kind that, you know, John Lee Hooker cataloged in his song. So it's a it, it's a place, the history is just so deep that, you know, uh, scholars have been and will be studying it uh, for years. My point was, oh, yeah, all the Motown songwriters and then all of the singers who didn't make it onto that roster, but recorded for the myriad of other labels and concerns that existed in the area. Right. So 
yeah, sure, the world has heard about Motown, but you know that there's so much more beneath that surface. And um, yeah, one of the things I learned about Motown in the process of doing these uh, shows is that they had a country label. I wow. did not know they had a country label. I, I was blown away when you know one of my um, guests had told me that. That's really interesting. And, you know, my interest, uh, I mean, aside from, you know, all of the, boy, I mean, the unbelievable contribution to American music made by Motown, I I love all of it. But I have a special interest in the Black Forum label, which released spoken word recordings and poetry, you know, uh, speeches and poetry and oh, okay. uh, and 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 politically motivated uh, recordings. So that's interesting too. Not available so much anymore. You really have to search that stuff out. But but it's there to be found, and I love right. that. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you see as uh, well globally? What do you see with rock and roll? Because everyone, every country has their take on you know, a particular genre of music, you know, um, Japan, Russia, mm-hmm. um, you know, what do you, what is, what are your thoughts on the, the future of rock and roll globally? Wow. Well, you know, one thing that I, I think that is pretty exciting is the reclaiming of rock and roll by young African-American uh, musicians, um, whether they're uh, Afropunk or um, more uh, directed toward Afrofuturism, there's certainly uh, a strain of jazz and fusion artistry coming back. I don't know if you remember, but fusion kind of got a bad name, you know, back in the day. Well, now coming back in a in a big way, in a good way. So artists are embracing. Uh, jazz and rock, which is, I think, a wonderful trend. Um, as far as other countries, you know, with the with the emergence of digital recording, we've been hearing, been able to hear such a, a, a wide spectrum of music from around the world. And I've had the chance to hear rock music from India, rock music from Cambodia, you know, and it's interesting. Uh, there is a language barrier often, so um, that that can be um, an impediment to enjoying it. Globally, you know, I don't, I, I can't rightly say what's going on in the world of rock music. People have been proclaiming that rock has been dead for a really long time and that it might come back. I, I would they, argue that... No, I was going to say, they say the same thing about jazz, though, so... <laughs> that's true that's true and you know yeah the argument is that but i don't think that great music ever goes away and and do we need more music well if it's great yes but if it's mediocre <laughs> or less than probably not but you know rock and roll it, it used to provide a sense of community for people who felt that they were on the outside of society and then it became something else, you know, it was uh, co-opted, commodified, um, mainstreamed, and, you know, the thing that happens often to art. I think that we have moved beyond the binary of the black and white, you know, categories, the rock and roll 
I think that it's time to just look at the full spectrum of music and accept that there are all different uh, gradations along the way. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. It, it's it's healthy. We don't need the categories. We probably never did. And um, I, I, I agree. <laughs> However, I think that it's just listeners who appreciate that. Not radio and not definitely not the in the music industry. I mean, no. how, they, they, they can't figure out a way to market music without having their labels. Yeah, I, that, that, that's exactly, you know, if we were to go back to the beginning of rock and roll, you mm-hmm. can, you can, um, you can see what happened, you know, in the late fifties, rock and roll kind of died out. It crazy, right? It's just invented and um, is picking up steam, and then it kind of drifts away. Why is that? Oh, well, some people go in the army. Others are under arrest. Others uh, want to retreat into gospel music. So it kind of goes away. And this is when the so-called powers that be, the industry machine, decides, oh, I know what we can do. We can take this black invention, right? Mm-hmm. And we can now put a white face on it and sell it to the mainstream. Okay, that worked for a minute or two but because people just weren't having it. That was not the spirit of rock and roll. So the civil rights m- movement at that point is on and people want to come together. Like you said, the people don't want this stratification People want to find unity and harmony, and we found it for a time on the airwaves, on the dance floor, at the venues where live music was being played by black folks, white folks, brown folks. It was for everyone, as it should be, you know, and um, it's just the business, like you said, that, that got in the way. We were talking before the show started about about today's uh, loss of Charlie Watts, the drummer from the Rolling Stones. And it's a sad day for rock music fans, and um, rightfully so. He was a great drummer. You know, uh, his fellow musicians were astounded by his ability to keep time and bring a certain feel that was uh, identifiable only as the Rolling Stones sound. He was my favorite member. Absolutely, right? And why (laughs) is that probably? Well, probably, and he would be the first to tell you that jazz was his first love. He was trained in that um, tradition, and he modeled himself on the greatest players of all time, Elvin Jones, Art Blakey, he loved the music of Duke Ellington, Charlie Parker, Miles Davis again. You know, Miles just comes up. I'm sure someday he'll just have a show on Miles and the influence and <laughs> every type of music, right? But back to right. Charlie Watts. He was always promoting jazz as a member of the Rolling Stones. I mean, not everybody would hear that, see that, acknowledge it, but that was the underpinning that was at the foundation. So when you ask me about worldwide rock and roll um, community or fellowship, you know, it's, it's, it's people like that, you know, an Englishman 
who wants to let the world know that American music, the traditional American culture that is African-American made, jazz, blues, gospel, that's what gave us rock and roll. Mm. If it were not for then what? Nothing. That is our culture. American culture is black culture. And the more white folks can get behind that, you know, uh, the, the, may the truth be told, (laughs) you know, but America isn't great about, um, reporting its history accurately. And I think other parts of the world uh, have gotten hip to that (laughs) sooner than we have. (laughs) Yeah. One of the biggest things as a, as a country we do is export music, whether it be techno or house or soul or funk or as you say, jazz or, you know, um, country, but we export music and we do it well. The business of music. Yeah. And, Mm. and, and getting back to the, the making of music, the joy of, of creation and, and witnessing the, uh, and hearing, you know, uh, people in the, the throes of their creativity that we get to enjoy via recorded music, live concerts, you know, now uh, courtesy of uh, YouTube and these great vintage videos and recordings that we all get to share. I mean, it's kind of a miracle when you think of it. If I could have accessed these YouTube clips, you know, when when I was a kid, I would be more knowledgeable about the music uh, than I am, I guess. (laughs) Oh, yeah. You and I both. I mean, I I find myself going down that rabbit hole so much and I have to (laughs) dig myself out. It's just unbelievable. All the history that's out there. Yeah. um, Yeah. In regards to um, artists. Yeah. Yeah. But but one thing I know that I've probably talked way too much, but but one more word on Charlie Watts. You know, I I had heard... um, something that he said people didn't understand how he could get so into like avant-garde jazz the music say of ornette coleman cecil taylor and um he said something to the effect of well it's it sounds good you know i like it (laughs) what more do we need to know than that right right yeah 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 so um were you able to put together a lists for our listeners to maybe to introduce them to early early days of uh, rock and roll well that was one direction that i neglected to follow but i could <laughs> i could do well, off it off the top uh, of your head yeah i could do it off the top of my head and maybe you know everybody that i mentioned uh today is probably worth a listen one person that i really wanted to note of course, was Etta James. You know, she was a great blues singer, uh, and that's how she was identified often, as a blues singer, who, of course, profoundly influenced uh, rock and roll singers, chiefly Janis Joplin, right? Etta James, because she came up in that world of chess records and the um, male-dominated sessions that took place there. I, I think Etta James does not really get her due. 
and she worked long and hard throughout her whole life. Now, so, is, it possible, is it possible she didn't get her due because she was uh, not classified, but she was, you know, jazz and gospel and... I think, yeah, I think, yeah, blues, you know, I, I, I think blues artists really have gotten the short shrift, you know, um, because they didn't have that marketing machinery so much behind them. Uh, and the, the circuit that they played, it, it was not as highly financed. And, uh, you know, for all kinds of reasons. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting point. But, but um, I am a big fan of little Richard, you know, we lost him in 2020 and, uh, he was working, you know, on and off in, in his later years, but, you know, the giants, um, what, what would we call them? Kind of like the, the big four. I, I go for, um, Bo Diddley, Chuck Berry, Fats Domino and little Richard and little Richard is the one, uh, obviously, you know, he was a big, influence on the Beatles, um, bringing in all the different styles, you know, from the South, from New Orleans, St. Louis. The, these are all like the the hotspots on the map of rock and roll. Later on, we get into New York and Los Angeles. But, but um, so we talked a little bit about the uh, blues women. There's a a great book by Angela Davis that takes on um, the stories of the blues women. And um, in particular, Ma Rainey and Bessie Smith and Memphis Minnie, who we talked about, uh, really foundational to the kind of later um, blues rock and forms that we're talking about. You have the girl groups, Phil Spector Productions, the Ronettes, mm -hmm. Um, Darlene Love, who was, of course, a great vocalist on a lot of those records, uh, often going by the name The Crystals. Um, yeah, The Crystals, yeah. Yeah, um, a great vocalist. Later, we talked about the Rolling Stones, you know, um, vocalists like Mary Clayton and Claudia Lanier. I know that we're going forward in time, but, you know, that's the nature of, of these timelines. You know, you have to go forward to go back. We didn't say a thing about background vocals but what would rock and roll be without you know the the vocalists the 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 secret uh weapons in the studio the side musicians the background vocalists um right. i would just encourage people to listen closely to read as much as you can in the, the, the notes, whether they're online or in books, of course, we like to encourage people to read books about rock and roll. If something strikes you, dig a little deeper, you know, see what's behind the curtain, because that is where I think the real juice is, you know, that's where you're going to find the good stuff. It's not just what you see on on the screen, you have to, as you said, go down the rabbit hole, and you'll find something that maybe your friends haven't heard of, and you certainly haven't heard of. But, you know, discovery is, is part of the deal. You know, we yeah. just don't accept what's offered to us, go out and mm -hmm. find some of your own. And if, if you have the talent, make some of your own music. Right? Yeah, being open minded when it comes to music, that's the key. Absolutely. I mean, I think right. of all the 
all the wonderful things that, you know, have, have come our way just in, in, in my lifetime. I mean, I feel so, um, blessed really to have been able to interview some of these people in the course of, of my work. Um, you know, some of the greats of, of music and to have just been on earth in their time, you know, to witness these performances, whether they were recorded or live, and to just know that, you know, great artists were among us. I mean, they really, they really do make the world go round. I do believe that art and music has the power and ability to make positive change. One of my, my favorite artists ever of all time, you don't know, I, I'm, I don't know that you could guess who it is, but well, but there's one person you never mentioned. Can I try to guess? Please. Is it Prince? Oh my gosh! Well, Prince, I could tell stories about Prince for days, but um, it's Bob Marley, actually. Oh wow! Um, okay. Yeah, um, <laughs> I know. And why is that? Well, like like Prince and like so many others, but let's just stick with Bob Marley. I did see Prince on his first time to San Francisco. I, it, that, that, that is um, burned into my memory. Actually what's burned into my memory is the day that I was watching American bandstand on a Saturday morning, you know, in my parents' home and Prince was the guest artist on American bandstand. Now, this is the kind of thing, you know, American Bandstand, Dick Clark, for better or worse, you know, Saturday mornings, you'd be watching it, there'd be all kinds of this or that, and then Prince, and then life changes <laughs> in an instant, you know, right. it's just boom, that's it, okay, mm-hmm. got to know everything about Prince, got to get every, you know, well, at that time, I guess it was like one or two records when he made his debut there, but it was like, got to know everything about Prince. Yeah. And, the reason I kind of dropped his name like that, because I was thinking he was a, for from, I guess, my generation, your generation. He was a guy who was trying to not be placed in a box musically. Yeah. 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 So I was thinking he would be the person that was. Yeah. You know. Well, that's it for sure. And and mm-hmm. and another thing about Prince is that he was an artist advocate and he also wanted people to know their history. So he would pay homage to uh, people who came before him, and he yes. would help promote people that would live after him. So he kind of had it all. And, and, um, and as for Bob Marley, you know, I, I would say that he was similar in that he wanted to bring people together. He was a great unifying force. He um, bridged that um, that uh, gap, or you know, the um, audiences with punk rock, uh, the punky reggae party, you know, and it's all right. Rastaman uh, vibration is positive, you know. Every little thing's going to be all right. I mean, if you're looking for positive uh, message music, Bob Marley is the guy. Calypso music, reggae music is some of the strongest message music that you'll ever hear on the planet. That said, it is also some of the happiest making music. I put it on 
Much like the blues, I would like to add, I put on a, a Bob Marley record and I put on a Mighty Sparrow record. I instantly feel happy. And they can be talking about very mm. serious issues. Of course, most of the time they are. But the spirit of hope that's threaded throughout is what what I'm hearing, what I what I love about it. The blues also works magically in that way. Of course, we know what it means to have the blues, but if you've ever listened to somebody like Furry Lewis, who is a great example of the blues bringing happiness to anybody who could who 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 hears it i mean i i can't think of a better example and and you know furry lewis lived uh, in memphis in our time and and many rock and roll people were fortunate to have worked with him and uh, and see see him live uh, the rolling stones uh, among them so you know when we're talking about prince yeah, this this same spirit. I, I, you know, we could call it rock and roll spirit. It, it's definitely a spirit that flows through all these musics. Mm, so, so what do you what do you great. have uh, in the hopper yeah. now? What are you working on? Um, I just wrapped up a, a project for um, the Bob Dylan archive, and um, I was asked to write about the civil rights era. And Bob Dylan's contribution and um, and that of one of his friends and colleagues from the Greenwich Village days, um, a songwriter named Len Chandler. Most people don't know the name Len Chandler, but he was third in a trio that included Bob Dylan, Joan Baez, and himself, Len Chandler. Um, if you watch any footage of the March on Washington, you will see the three of them uh, there uh, performing. And little is known about Len Chandler, but I interviewed him several times. And uh, he told me the story of collaborating and learning how to write songs more accurately with Bob Dylan when they were young men in Greenwich Village. And this is a, the exact kind of history that I love chasing down and uncovering. And um, again, Len Chandler, a folk singer and unheralded mm -hmm. um, movement worker during the civil rights movement who actually went to register voters in Mississippi at great risk to himself, as did all the freedom riders uh, at that time. And this is an issue, of course, that is as timely today as it was in the early 60s. So... Um, I don't veer too too far from um, the general course that that I like to stay on, which is uh, music and intersections with social justice. But when I get a chance to go and take a deep dive into something like that, I, I jump on it because uh, research is one of my favorite parts of the job. And more than that, talking to folks and um, combining it with the soundtrack of the music of their lives and our lives and projecting, you know, a, a full picture of our times, these extraordinary times that we lived through the late 20th century and the early 21st century. I don't think that historians will really be able to believe what we lived through 
uh, when they look back at us. It's kind of mind-boggling in a way. So um, I'm, I'm writing it for the readers of the future, and uh, that's who I have my eye on now. Well, thank you, Denise thank Sullivan. Thank you, Thomas. It was really for a pleasure. For sharing all of that. I, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. Well, I hope the episode moved you to want to research further the origins of rock and roll. Denise Sullivan is an example of why I'm passionate about having these conversations about different genres of music. Her insight, her writing about music and the connection socially. Her passion is contagious. I like the idea of moving in rock and roll timeline before Chuck Berry came on the scene to 1948 with John Lee Hooker. Denise was disappointed that she was unable to provide her list during our conversation, so here is her suggested listening. Boogie Chilling, John Lee Hooker, 1948. The Fat Man, Fats Domino, 1950. Hound Dog, Hip Mama, Thornton, 1953. Wallflower, Rolling With Me, Henry, Etta James, 1955. Too Much Monkey Business, Chuck Berry, 1957. Keep It Knockin', Little Richard, 1957. Who Do You Love, Bo Diddley, 1957. Shout, Izzy Brothers, 1959. Fool in Love, Ike and Tina Turner, 1960. The Locomotion, Little Eva, 1962. She also wanted to apologize for not mentioning Sylvia Robinson. Yes, the mother of hip-hop. Norma Jean Wolfer, a.k.a. The Duchess, both performed with Bo Diddley. Uh, Tina Turner, Barbara Lynn, Ray Charles, Willie Dixon, and Holland Wolf, to name just a few. Please be sure to shop for Denise Sullivan's books at independent bookstores, bookshop.org, or on her website, denisesullivan.com. As always, please share the link to this episode and your favorite episode with someone who wants to learn interesting facts about the music they listen to and to expand their playlist. They can listen directly from my website at meetthemusic.buzzsprout.com or wherever they get their podcast. If this was your first episode, be sure to listen to our most downloaded episode on Zydeco with Michael Tesseran or our other episode, Moving Up the, Moving Up the Charts with Dr. Ray Lyon Rabaka on rap and hip-hop culture. Thank you for joining us in our musical journey.